Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 14. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 53 all the way down to verse 52 to the portion our friend Joshua read for us a moment ago. My name is Andrew and I serve as a pastor here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of this passage and we are kind of running down the home stretch of Mark's gospel. We've been in this gospel for a little while now and, and we're coming towards the end and you've noticed how things are kind of slowing down the closer you get to the cross and the reason that is is because the cross is the main thing about Jesus' ministry. It's the main thing about his life. It's the most important uh, point in his life and in his ministry was when he went to the cross and he drank the cup we referred to last week. Now, when you step into this passage, you see a lot of things. A lot of, uh, there's, a, there's kind of one big theme that, that merges in this passage and has to do with the idea of, of pressure, specifically social pressure. Now, I know social pressure is something that we've all felt at different times, especially uh, if you recall your days as a sixth grader. Uh, social pressure is intense for the sixth grader. I remember when I was in the sixth grade, there was a kid named Ed Treadway. He was the coolest kid in our class. Everybody wanted to be his friend. He knew he had a certain type of uh, power and influence over others, so he created what uh, he called the Cool Kids Club. He wasn't the cleverest kid, but he created the Cool Kids Club, and that's what he called it, that's what he labeled it. Now, to become a part of his crew and to run with him, you had to go through an initiation. And the in initiation consisted of you stepping in front of Ed and the rest of the crew and, and showing that you could curse creatively. And so you would step up and you would string some words together and, and if you say them in a way that caused him to smile or to laugh, you could be a part of his crew and run with him. Now when it came to me and, and it was my opportunity to join the cool kids club, to my shame, I stepped up and I strung my words together and Ed appreciated it. He brought me in. But there was another guy by the name of Stephen who was uh, in our sixth grade class and when Stephen was given the opportunity, he refused. And when he refused to join that particular club, the, the social pressure, or unfazed by the social pressure he felt, it did cause him to be ostracized from uh, the sixth grade school year. He wasn't invited to the parties. He wasn't allowed at the lunch table with all the others. He spent most of the year by himself. And he was a kid that really struck me, and, and so much so that I went and asked him, so, so why didn't you want to do what we were all doing? And he looked at me and he said, well, not too long ago I was baptized. I was a follower of Jesus, or I, I am now a follower of Jesus, or he wouldn't use that word. He would say, I am now a Christian, and, and I remember hearing him say that and just floored by his resiliency, but then I was also reminded of my failure because I, too, in that moment, was a follower of Jesus. I, too, was a Christian, but I showed far less faith in the sixth grade than my friend Stephen did. Now, of course, social pressure can do that to us. When our faith comes under that type of pressure, we can compromise and conform in a variety of ways. And, and of course, that type of pressure isn't confined to our years as a sixth grader. That type of pressure follows us all the days of our lives. It just takes various forms. As you get older, social pressure uh, can come to you by way of social media. We live in a social media world where we're constantly looking at everybody's filtered lives and then we're comparing ourselves with them, thinking, well, uh, look at how happy they are. Hey, look at the trips they're going on. Hey, look at all the friends that they have or the followers they have. And then we compare our social media account and the rhythms of our life and we think, well, well something's not measuring up. And so we feel pressure to improve in certain areas and that pressure can sometimes cause us to uh, make compromises in our faith, not only in in what we're doing, but it can cause us to compromise our faith in what we're believing about our worth and our value in the eyes of God. 
It can even happen with your own personal expectations as you have expectations for your life of certain goals of maybe a moment when you want to be married or a moment when you want to have kids and, and, all, and those desires and those expectations have not been fulfilled and you're looking at everybody else's lives and you're seeing those who have things that you don't and your heart begins to crave them so much so that you perhaps are tempted to compromise your faith and fold to the pressure by giving a preemptive strike and you start making decisions preemptively, seeking to satisfy a need that God himself has not satisfied yet, and you get out ahead of Jesus' leadership in certain areas of your life, and compromising to those pressures you feel can, can do harm to your faith. It can do harm to your understanding of the gospel and what God wants to be for you in Jesus. But then you also have other areas where this can come up into play, and I think this is the most uh, common one that is present behind the passage that we're studying tonight, and that is the social pressure that comes by way of governmental authority. You know, when Mark sat down to write his gospel, in many ways, he's writing this gospel to encourage those who were, f- who were tempted to fold under the social pressure being applied by the government. He's writing to a group of Christians, most likely in Rome, and, and these Roman Christians are undergoing systematic and heinous persecution led by the Roman emperor and the Roman government. And so he writes the gospel to encourage them, to remind them that, look, your faith in Jesus is not in vain. It will be vindicated. It will be validated. Stand firm. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. And so he's, he's writing this gospel to reveal who Jesus is and his authority And he's writing this gospel to reveal that he can be trusted even when the social pressure around you intensifies. And I think that's specifically true when you look at the passage we're dealing with tonight. This passage is about faith under pressure. And the way that Mark takes these two scenes and he weaves them together is fascinating. He takes these two two scenes. First, Jesus uh, in the court of the high priest, and he's being interrogated. And you see pressure applied to Jesus in that moment. But then on the other side, you have Peter, and he's outside of that room. And you see him, too, undergoing a type of interrogation. His faith in Jesus is brought under pressure in this scene, and you know that Peter's weaving these two, scene themes, these two scenes together because in verses 53 and 54, he lays it out. In 53, he shows us Jesus uh, in the court of the high priest, but then in verse 54, he talks about Peter uh, being out in the courtyard, and then the story kind of diverges. It, it verges where you have the scene where Jesus is dealt, what happens with Jesus in the court of the high priest, and then what happens with Peter when he's outside, and he's saying, look, you have these two guys, Jesus and Peter, two different scenes are about to happen, two different responses to pressure are about to be observed. And so you have this introduced in verses 53 and 54, then when you jump into verse 55, you see the interrogation of Jesus. And what's interesting about this moment is that you find Jesus standing before powerful people, Immediately after he is arrested in the Mount of Olives, he's, he's submitted his will to the Father's will as it relates to the Garden of Gethsemane and going to the, going to the cross. And then uh, Judas betrays Jesus, brings uh, some members of the Sanhedrin as well as some Roman guards. They come, they arrest Jesus. When they take Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane, they bring him to a couple of places. The first place they bring Jesus is to uh, a man named Annas' house. Now, Annas was the prior chief priest to the one that we meet in today's passage. 
But he goes there first in the other Gospels and has an encounter there. But then Mark doesn't include this, but the other Gospels do. After Annas kind of says, yes, let's do something with this Jesus, they bring him to this other guy's place, the official high priest's home, a guy by the name of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is actually the son-in-law of Annas, and he's now the new uh, chief priest, and this is where Jesus is standing in this moment. He's at the chief priest's home, and, and the whole council has been brought into the room. That council refers to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, it refers to the, the uh, most powerful Jewish authority that had been licensed by Rome to rule the people. And they had a lot of power. They could try all kinds of cases. The one thing that this council, this powerful group, could not do is that they could not execute capital punishment. They couldn't put anybody to death. This is why later we're going to talk about Jesus going before Pilate because Pilate was the Roman governor and only he could green light someone's execution. But before all that goes down, Jesus is standing here before this powerful group who have conspired against him. And we know they've conspired against Jesus because earlier in chapter 14, verse 1, we we read straight up. It says, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes, uh, those religious leaders, those powerful people, were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So it's clear that these guys want to kill Jesus, and so they've been conspiring a way to do that, to make that happen. And so they say that in verse 1, and then you drop down to verse 55 of tonight's passage, and it says that the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. In other words, what you have going on in this moment is a type of kangaroo court, a court where the verdict has already been decided. They know what they want to do. Now they just have to get the evidence. They have to rally the right kind of evidence to make that happen, the right kind of evidence that they could take to Pilate and then convince him to execute Jesus. And so it's a kangaroo court. These guys have conspired against Jesus. The verdict's been decided. They're searching for evidence. Now to get this evidence, they start pulling together some witnesses. And they gather these witnesses, and it says these false witnesses start launching charges at Jesus, but none of them are sticking because these false witnesses, their stories aren't, aren't jiving with one another. It says that they actually uh, could not get their testimony to agree in verse 56. So not only has this group conspired against Jesus, they are falsely accusing Jesus. Falsely accusing him. And, and notice the charge in verse 58. It says this is one of the specific charge that is outlined by that group of false witnesses. Witnesses. It says that we heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And they recall Jesus' interactions in the temple. You remember when Jesus entered the temple and he cleaned house, and, and then afterwards he tells his disciple about how his disciples about how the temple is going to be destroyed? Now it's clear, Jesus did say something like that, but they don't get him right because when Jesus talks about the temple, he's not talking about the physical temple necessarily. He's talking about his body. He says, these guys, this temple, my body will be destroyed, and then in three days it will rise again. So in John chapter 2, verse 19, he would make that explicit. So, he's not, so he does say this, but they're misinterpreting his message. Some of them probably caught it because they know that the temple could not be built in three days and those types of things. And so they falsely accuse him, and they talk about this temple, and they know that Jesus said something similar to this, but but Jesus never said that he himself would be the one to destroy the temple. He never said he was going to come in and overturn overturn that place. 
And so they're trying to discredit Jesus, but all of their efforts to discredit him are falling flat. Uh, I'm sure you are aware that people in every generation have tried to discredit Jesus. They've tried to discredit Jesus by maligning the New Testament as unreliable. They've tried to miscredit or discredit Jesus by talking about or trying to re-envision kind of who he was in the first century, re-envision what his mission was in life. There's been people in every generation who have tried to discredit Jesus, but in every attempt, every attempt has fallen flat. You can try to discredit Jesus, but you will not succeed. Jesus will always win, and ultimately he will get the last word when it comes to every charge that is launched at him as it as it relates to his falsehood or as it relates to his accusing him of doing something that's not right or not good, every charge waged against Jesus will fall flat. You see that happening in this story. But what I really want you to see is how is what really bothered these religious people. What really bothered them is found there in verse 58. There's a little phrase that Mark includes and it only appears here as it relates to the temple and nowhere else in the Gospels. Notice what he says. We heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple that is, here's the phrase, made with hands. The reason why that's such an important phrase is because made with hands is a phrase that shows up all over the Old Testament and it's always in reference to idols. Idols were things people made with their hands. And so when the people accuse Jesus of this, they charge him with these words and they say that, and they use the phrase uh, that is made with hands, understand they're getting after what really bothers them about Jesus. What really bothers them about Jesus is the fact that he is a threat to their idols. He is a threat to the very foundation upon which they are building their lives. And this is what ultimately bothers all people about Jesus. You know, as rational as a person wants to be in trying to show the Gospels as unreliable or Jesus as discrediting, as rational as a person may uh, presume to be, in more times than not, unbelief is usually tied to the fact that there's an idol lurking beneath the surface that they don't want to give up. When you come to hear the gospel and you come to understand what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing and what that means for you, you're either going to respond by bowing and submitting to him or you're going to resist him to the point where you want to discredit him. But usually it's not always rational reasons why a person disbelieves Jesus. Usually it's an existential reason. It's a personal reason. It's a subjective reason. It's a reason that it's them seeing Jesus as a threat to their identities. And so we want to be sensitive to that and aware of that when we are engaging people with the gospel, when we are bearing witness to Jesus. We want to understand that the gospel goes after hearts, and that's what we want to do. So we want to identify idols, and we want to expose them gracefully and truthfully, and we want Jesus to replace those idols. Just as Jesus came to replace the temple in Jerusalem, he wants to replace the idols people have made for themselves in the lives that they're leading now. And so you have this exchange showing why they really didn't like Jesus. He was a threat to the very foundation upon which they were building their lives. And so they falsely accuse him. And then you look at verse 60. Look what happens. And the high priest then stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is, what is it that these men testify against you? He wants Jesus to acknowledge the charges that are coming at him, but Jesus refuses. It says that Jesus made no answer. He remained silent. 
Now, on one hand, his silence was strategic. He knew that if he said anything, what he said would be manipulated by the prosecution and used against him. So he just sits back and remains silent. But not only was his silence strategic, understand that his silence was prophetic. When he remains silent in this moment, he's fulfilling a prophecy made about him in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. Long before this moment, this is what is said about Jesus' life and ministry, about what would happen to him. It it would say that Christ would be oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And so when that passage refers to this suffering servant, the Christ, as one of the sheep or this lamb, understand that the lambs and the sheep that were brought to God and As sacrificial offerings, those lambs and sheep were supposed to be without blemish. They were innocent creatures, so to speak. And so when you think about Jesus' silence and not responding to the accusations being launched against him, understand that his silence reveals his innocence. Jesus is innocent of all the charges being waged against him. His silence reveals his innocence. But then the high priest gets more specific. He asks a more pointed question immediately after in verse 61. It says, and again, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now that's a loaded question. That's the type of question that would get Jesus in trouble if he answers it, which is why we love the fact that Jesus answers it. He responds to that question. He discloses who he is to the high priest in response to that question. Look at verse 62. He says, I am... And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power until the come, until come, and sorry, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, the reason why this is such a significant moment is because as we've been journeying through Mark, you know that time and time again, Jesus hasn't explicitly disclosed his identity. When people have come to understand that he is the Christ or that he is the Son of God or that there's something unique about him, what would he do? He would oftentimes caution silence. He would say, okay, just don't tell anyone yet. I don't want people to misinterpret my mission. So Jesus kind of held those cards close to his chest all throughout this gospel. But when you come to this moment and Jesus is standing before the high priest and the the Sanhedrin and this council is accusing him of wrongdoing and then they ask this question, for the first time, Jesus explicitly discloses who he is. He says, I am. He affirms what the high priest is asking. Are you the Christ? Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. I am the highly anticipated one. I am the long-expected Messiah. I am he. And the reason why he would disclose that at this moment is because the cross is imminent. He knows the cross is imminent, so he's saying, okay, now I want people to know who I am because only now can they understand why I've come. I've come to go to the cross. So he says, I am the Christ, but then he goes one step further. Because the high priest asked, you are the Christ, the son of the blessed. And Jesus says, I am. Not only I am the Christ, he says, I am the son of God. And you find the climax of the gospel in that confession. Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. This was the first thing we read in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The gospel of Jesus Christ, of Jesus the Christ, the son of God. So all of Mark's gospel has been driving to this moment, showing us who Jesus is. And for the first time in this gospel, Jesus affirms that identity. 
Now, there are some scholars and some bloggers out there who love to try to say Jesus never claimed to be God or he never claimed to be uh, the Messiah. Here, in no uncertain terms, Jesus says, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. This is who I am. So if you ever read a blog or ever read a book where people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be who we say he is as Christians, that's a lie. Don't believe it. He does so in this passage, and he does so in other ways as well. But Jesus responds, I am the Christ, I am the Son of God. But then he quotes a couple of Old Testament passages, not only about who he is, he also wants to talk about what will happen, what he will do. Listen to what he says. After saying, I am... He then tells the high priest, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And he takes two Old Testament passages, one from Psalm 110 verse 1 and one from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. He takes these two passages and he weaves them together. And do you know what Jesus is doing? Although Jesus is being vilified by his accusers, Jesus is telling them one day, he will be vindicated by the Father. So not only is he affirming who he is, he's saying everything that you're about to do to me, one day I will be vindicated. One day I will be shown as the Christ, as the Son of God. One day, you may, you're gonna crucify me, but I'm gonna rise again. And not only am I gonna rise from the grave, I'm gonna keep rising and take my seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father, vindicated for all of eternity, reigning, ruling over all the cosmos. This is what Jesus is saying he will do. He will be vindicated. He's going to take up his cross now, but one day, he's, and after that, he will take up his crown. So it speaks about his vindication. You need to hold on to that as we keep moving through. So the high priest doesn't like what Jesus says. He, he understands the, the gravity of what Jesus is saying, and so he tears his garment. He rips his clothes out of protest. It kind of reminds me of the Mongolian wrestling coaches back in the Olympics when they wanted to protest a call against some of their wrestlers. They, they literally ripped their clothes off and protested in, down in there, you know. And so they did that. And well, this is what this kind of reminds me of. They're so offended. They so want to protest that the most dramatic way they can protest what Jesus is saying is to rip their garment and to say what you were saying is not what we want to hear. And then they say, this is blasphemy. And they say, and he says, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And then we find Jesus is condemned to die. Because of this, they would condemn him to death. And then in verse 65, they start treating Jesus unjustly. They start treating Jesus shamefully. It says they spit on him. It says they cover his face, which means they blindfolded him. And some of the other gospels say that after they blindfolded him, they would take turns punching him. And as they would punch him, they would ask, okay, prophesy, tell us who it is that punched you. If you are the Messiah, if you are the Son of God, you should know who's punching you. And so they mock him in these moments saying, why don't you prophesy to us? Tell us something we don't know. Tell us something we don't think you should know. And and the irony, the irony of this whole picture is that everything that they're doing is in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Earlier in Mark chapter 10, verse 34, if you just turn back in your Bibles a couple of pages, Jesus would say this. He says there that they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And that after three days, he will rise. It's so ironic that they're there beating him and mocking him, telling him to prophesy. They are fulfilling prophecy that Jesus had already uttered. It's a fascinating moment. And you find the end of that 
the end of that scene is the guards receiving Jesus with blows. His inter- Jesus is interrogated. Jesus remained faithful. That's scene one. But then you turn the corner in verse 66. Mark takes us to a different scene. He takes us to Peter and he shows us something that is intended to be contrasted with what just happened. So that we can see the difference between Jesus and Peter. So that we can see how we can stand firm under pressure. And it all has to do with where our faith is located in those moments. And so you turn the corner in verse 66 and you're transferred out of the court of the high priest. And you're brought into the courtyard. And you're no longer dealing with the interrogation of Jesus. You're dealing with the interrogation of Peter. Another interrogation is taking place. Another trial, so to speak, is underway. And what you're going to find, a complete contrast with what just went down, whereas Jesus stood before powerful people, Peter is found standing before powerless people, right? He's standing out in the courtyard, and a servant girl approaches him. The lowest rung on the social ladder, a servant girl comes to him and asks him a question about his discipleship. But then there's also other guards, other workers there who were employed by uh, the high priest and, and others. These, these were servants. These were not uh, powerful people. They were powerless people. And this is who, Jesus, who Peter is standing before. And we're told that they recognize Peter. They, they knew him to be one of Jesus' disciples. The servant girl would say at the end of verse 67, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. And then they would say later, you're one of his followers. And they would say this time and time and time again, recognizing Peter. Now, in Matthew's gospel, we're told that one of the things that kind of gave Peter away was his accent. He talked differently. Peter was from Galilee, so he had a different accent. And so once they heard his voice around the fire while he's warming himself, they started saying, well, he sounds like he's a Galilean, and I know Jesus used to run with Galileans, so I think this is one of, his, one of his guys. And so that's true. He was given away by his accent, but I think there's another part in that. I think Peter was giving away by the shakiness in his voice. I think his voice was shaking. I think he was trembling as he was responding because he knew the pressure was rising. He knew the pressure was, was rising as he was standing before these powerless people, and they began to recognize him. But not only did they recognize him, they rightfully accuse him. Everything they say about Peter is true. Whereas everything the religious leaders said about Jesus was false, here everything these people are saying about Peter is true. They're rightfully accusing him. And then it moves on. And you look at his response. You see, verse, you see in his response, verses 69 and 70, listen to what goes down. It says, And the servant girl saw Peter and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. That is true. Then in verse 7, it says that, verse 70, Peter denied it. That was the second time he denied. Then in verse 71, he would would deny it in an intense way. So after a little while, the bystanders in verse 70 again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And then he begins to invoke this curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom... You speak. And so Jesus, uh, Peter's response in this moment begins to reveal his inadequacy. Whereas Jesus' response revealed his innocence, Peter's reveals his inadequacy. And the reason why that is so is because earlier, when Jesus sat his disciples down and he warned them of this moment, what did Peter say? Peter protested. Peter disagreed with Jesus. And he says, even if, the, even if they all fall away, I will not deny you. 
And yet here, standing before powerless people, he's denying Jesus. His inadequacy is being revealed in how he's responding. He's denying who he is, saying, I do not know this man. I'm not one of his followers. I'm not one of his disciples. I'm, I'm not one of those guys. And now he's inadequate. He's denying his true identity. It's a bad moment for Peter. Peter is falling hard. Peter's about to hit rock bottom, especially in verse 71. Now, verse 71, it says, get this, that Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. Now, to understand the intensity of that moment and to understand the gravity of Peter's offense, you have to understand what that verse really says. Your translations, like mine, probably says that he invoked a curse on himself, and they turned that verb curse into a reflexive, meaning the verb would be acted upon one's self, a reflexive verb. But the verb that's translated curse, understand that it's not a reflexive verb, it's actually a transitive verb. And that means some Bible translators who took that verb and they translated it as a reflexive, I think they were just trying to soften the blow. They were trying to reduce the gravity of Paul, Peter's offense in this moment. You see, those pronouns, when it says on himself, that is supplied, that is not present in the original language of the New Testament. Because the word for curse, anathema, is a transitive verb. And as a transitive verb, it must have an object. And so what I think is going down, and there's a lot of scholarship that backs this position, what I think is going down is that Peter in that moment is not cursing, is not heaping a curse upon himself, he's actually cursing Jesus. He's cursing Jesus and then swearing that he doesn't know him. He curses Christ and then swears he doesn't know Christ. And the reason he's doing that is because he wants to live the pressure he's under is too great. And in this moment, at that time, he curses Christ so that he can live. And in that moment, Peter hits rock bottom. His, far, his fall is far. His offense in this passage is one that you would think nobody could come back from. To actually curse Jesus? Curse him so that you can live? Like, it's, it's an egregious offense. But I think that's what's happening. And I think that's why when the rooster crowed, just as Jesus predicted, the rooster crowed a second time and Peter began to think about what Jesus told him and he began to think about how he made that profession and now he's not living out what he said he would do. It says that he breaks down and weeps. Just as the high priest ripped his garment, Peter's heart is ripped at the end of this scene. He's broken, he's weeping, he's crying. Peter has failed so on one hand, you have Jesus standing, staying faithful before powerful people, standing faithful, affirming who he is and affirming his innocence, disclosing who he is. Jesus faithful, even though he would be condemned to die. You have Peter standing before powerless people, acting out his inadequacy, denying who he is and cursing Christ so that he might live. And you, you take those scenes. You take those scenes and you hold them together. Understand that the reason why I believe Mark puts these two stories together is to teach you and I something very significant about faith. Something very significant about our faith when it's under pressure. Because on one hand, he shows Jesus' faithfulness, but on the other hand, he shows Peter's faithlessness. And the reason why he juxtaposes these two scenes is because he wants to teach us the lesson 
that faith in the faithful faith in the faithfulness of Jesus is the only faith that will not fail. It's faith in the faithfulness of Jesus that never fails. And the reason why that is is because you have to pan back and think about the rest of Peter's story. Remember that passage we looked at last week, Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is predicting the denials. And in Luke chapter 22, we're told Jesus said this to Peter. Listen to what he says. Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But, get this, I have prayed for you. And what did Jesus pray for Peter? He prayed that his faith may not fail. I'm praying that your faith doesn't fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter's story is presented in the Gospel of Mark to teach us that faith in the faithfulness of Jesus never fails. So in Luke's Gospel, I'm praying that your faith doesn't fail. I'm praying that you will learn, Peter, not to put your faith in yourself but that you would learn to put your faith in me in every moment of every day, that you would trust me. That's the only faith that will not fail. So he says, I'm praying for you. So you think about Peter committing this egregious offense, cursing Christ so that he can live. He's broken, he's weeping, but then you keep moving along his story and you begin to think about that moment in John chapter 21 when Jesus calls Peter to the shore and he has breakfast with Peter and they sit down and they have a conversation and in this conversation, Jesus reminds Peter of the moment when he failed to follow Jesus. He reminds Peter of the time he cursed him so that he could live. He reminds him so that he could also restore him so that he could understand something about the faithfulness of Jesus. In other words, I think Jesus' prayer was being answered the moment Peter approached Jesus on the shore. You see, what happens so often when we fail Jesus, we we feel like we can't approach him. We feel like if we come to him, he won't accept us. If we come to him, he won't embrace us. If we come to him, he won't fellowship with us. After we fail, we have such a hard time getting up and re-approaching Jesus, but Peter doesn't. In fact, in John chapter 21, we are told that the disciples were out in the boat fishing when the resurrected Jesus showed up on the shore. And when the disciples recognized Jesus was on the shore, it says that one of the apostles, one of the disciples, Peter, actually did a swan dive off the boat and swam to shore. That's how eager he was to get to Jesus. How do you explain such audacity? How do you explain such boldness? How do you explain such faith? A faith that hasn't failed ultimately. Well, you explain it by the fact that Jesus prayed for Peter. And he prayed that, G- that Peter's faith would not fail, that Peter would put his faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. And that's precisely the lesson he wants you and I to embrace tonight. It's interesting that as you move through the New Testament, one of the things we are told that Jesus is doing for us right now, as we speak, as we sit here in this room, in this moment, We're told in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that Jesus lives to what? To make intercession, to pray for us. Have you ever wondered, what is Jesus praying? What is Jesus praying for you? I believe Jesus is praying that your faith doesn't fail. 
I believe he's interceding that in those moments when you fail to follow Jesus, in those moments when you show yourself to be inadequate, in those moments when you deny Jesus, in those moments when you forget who you are as a child of God, I believe Jesus is praying that your faith doesn't fail, that you will come to your senses, that you will come back, and when you do, you will be more qualified to serve Jesus than you were before. That's how marvelously mysterious the grace of Jesus' intercessory ministry is. He's praying that our faith doesn't fail. This is why I believe John would write in his letter, 1 John, when he says, if anyone says he hasn't sinned, he deceives himself. If you say you have no sin, you are deceived. But if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. But then you might ask, well, on what basis are we forgiven? What basis are we cleansed? And then you move on down to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and you see these words. Listen to what is said in this moment. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, if, if anyone does sin, if you fail, if you curse Jesus, if you fall on your face, if anyone does sin, get this, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate means we have an attorney, we have it a defender. When our faith is on trial, when we are being interrogated by the pressures of this world, we have an advocate. We have a defender in Jesus. But notice the basis of his appeal. This is, I can't tell you how important this is for your worldview as a Christian. Notice, it says that our advocate with the Father is Jesus Christ, the what? The righteous. Now, it doesn't say Jesus Christ, the merciful, although Jesus is merciful. It doesn't say Jesus Christ the loving, although Jesus is loving. What does it say? It says Jesus Christ the righteous. The reason why that is significant is because of what we talked about last week. That when Jesus went to the cross, he drank the cup. He satisfied the wrath of God. When Jesus was condemned to the cross, he was condemned not because he felled the Father in any way, shape, or form. He was condemned because you and I have been faithless, because you and I have denied God. But now he's advocating for us on the basis of what? On the basis of his righteousness. In other words, Jesus is faithful to forgive us of our faithlessness because when he died on the cross, he died for our faithlessness. When Jesus died on the cross, he died not only for the sin you committed before you became a Christian, he died for the sin you committed as a Christian. Jesus died for all of our sins for all time, past, present, and future. Jesus the righteous is our advocate because when you fail the Father, when you sin against him in any discernible way, Jesus stands up and he says, they're forgiven because I paid the penalty for that sin. I am the righteous one. I am the just one. I am the one who's done everything necessary for their forgiveness. The righteousness of Jesus is so significant for our understanding of the gospel. Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And when he advocates for us, he advocates on the basis of his righteousness, his faithfulness. This is why faith in the faithfulness of Jesus never fails. 
We're not trusting in ourselves as followers of Christ. We're not trusting in our obedience as followers of Christ. We're not even trusting in the fruit of our faith as followers of Christ. We are trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus, the fact that he lived the life you and I could not live. He died the death that you and I should have died, and he rose from the grave so that all of our sins would be forgiven. That's our gospel. That's our Savior. Jesus is the faithful one who will forgive us of our faithlessness. But one of the interesting things about Peter's story, if you keep reading in John chapter 21, right after Jesus would restore him and he would show that he is forgiven, that he would be faithful to Peter, listen to what he says to Peter. He says in verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself. In other words, you used to live a pretty self-reliant life. You were self-reliant back in the day when you said, even if they all fall away, I will not deny you. But that was when you were young. But... When you are old, when you mature, when you grow, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then there's this phrase, this, is, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. In other words, Jesus is telling Peter, there's coming a day where you're going to show yourself more faithful than you were um, in the courtyard of the high priest. There you denied me in front of a bunch of powerless people, but one day you're going to be brought before a bunch of powerful people and they're going to kill you. And in that day, you're going to honor God. You're going to be faithful. Why? Because you're learning over time that the faith and the faithfulness of Jesus is the only faith that doesn't fail. You're going to learn, Peter, what it means to live a dependent life, what it means a trust, to live a trusting life, what it means to live a life empowered by my presence in you and not all the things that you're trying to do for me as an apostle. And history would tell us, reliable sources from church history, that Peter one day was killed. Peter one day was martyred for his faith. One day he did die for Jesus, so to speak. And we are told, the story goes, that Peter was nailed to a cross. And as he was being nailed to the cross, he doesn't deny Jesus. He faithfully proclaims Jesus by telling his executioners, look, I'm not worthy to to die like Jesus. And What his executioners did in that moment was to take his cross and flip it upside down, and Peter died that way. How do you go from denying Jesus in front of a servant girl to faithfully proclaiming Jesus unto death? Well, you relocate your faith. In the courtyard, Peter trusted in himself. On the cross, Peter trusted in the faithfulness of Jesus. He knew not only was his sins forgiven, he knew that his life would be vindicated. When we are trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus, not only will he forgive us, he will vindicate our faithfulness. In other words, whatever you give up in your obedience to Jesus, whatever sacrifices you make, whatever suffering, pressure you feel as a result of your faith, there's coming a day when you, like Jesus, will be vindicated. You will discover that there's no such thing as wasted obedience in the kingdom of God. You will discover that there's no such thing as wasted sacrifice in the kingdom of God. You will be vindicated. That, I think, drove Peter to his grave. That accounted for his faithfulness. He knew that he would be vindicated. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 5, Jesus, uh, Peter would write to a bunch of suffering Christians in his little letter to a bunch of struggling Christians, and he would encourage them with that reality. Listen to these words. He tells the church, to hum- he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, that he may vindicate you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the do- devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you have suffered a little while, get this, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will vindicate you. There's no such thing as a wasted act of obedience. There's no such thing as a wasted expression of faith. Even if you die in this world following Jesus, your death will not be in vain. He will vindicate all of his people. That's what Peter learns, and that's what he would tell the church many years later, just before he would go to his grave. So if that's true, if faith in the faithfulness of Jesus is the only faith that doesn't fail, then how do we put our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus? Well, you do it fairly simply. One, you put your faith in the faithfulness of Jesus by simply agreeing with him. When he says you're weak, you agree, I am weak. When he says you're a sinner, you agree, I am a sinner. When he says you need me, you agree, I need you. See, that was Peter's failure when Jesus was arrested, or just before Jesus was arrested. He disagreed with Jesus, showing that his faith wasn't in the faithfulness of Jesus. He was disagreeing with him. So if you and I are going to put our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, it starts simply by agreeing with Jesus. We agree with him when he tells us in John chapter 15, verse 5, that apart from him, we can do nothing We cannot bear fruit. We cannot be faithful. We cannot influence anyone with the kingdom of God. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We agree with those words. But not only do we agree with him in those moments, we start abiding in him. Again, we learned from Peter earlier in verse 54 of chapter 14 that he followed Jesus at a distance. The pressure started to put distance between him and his Savior. And as we face pressure in this world, it is very important that we don't allow that pressure to put distance between us and Jesus. But instead, we abide in him. That's what we're told. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We place our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus by agreeing with him and by abiding in him. But notice the phrase. It's not simply us abiding in him. It's him abiding in us. In other words, don't try to live a faithful Christian life under under pressure by doing things for Jesus. Don't try to live for him. Live in him. When you're living in him, you can rest assured that he's living in you and he's gonna empower you all the days of your life so that you can be a faithful follower of Christ. The one image that has been popping into my mind, something I read not too long ago of of this whole picture. And I think it struck me when I was playing with my kids one night and we had some balloons and one of the games they like to play is bounce the balloon, keep it from hitting the floor. And so as the balloon tries to fall, you gotta hit it up and you try to keep it up in the air as long as possible. You know, I'm 36 years old, my kid, son Asher's two and he's got a lot of energy, I get tired. I get tired trying to pop that balloon up in the air and keep it from hitting the floor and Eventually, I give up, and the the balloon hits. And the reason why it hits the floor is because that balloon is filled with oxygen. And so since it's filled with oxygen, it has to be batted up in the air, and that can be a very exhausting thing. Some of you are having a hard time living the Christian life because you're approaching the Christian life trying to keep yourself in the air by batting that balloon around. It's all about what you do and how well you do it. But you know there's another way to keep a balloon afloat, right? You don't fill a balloon with oxygen, you fill a balloon with helium. And that helium is able to lift that balloon off the ground in an effortless manner. I think this is what Jesus is getting after in John chapter 15 when he says, abide in me and I in you. 
Fill your life with me and I'll keep you afloat. Fill your life with me, up with me and, and you will discover how effortless a life lived by grace can be. He will keep you afloat regardless of the pressures you feel in the world that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that if any of us are growing tired and weary um, because we're trying to do so many things for you and be faithful ourselves, I pray that you would give us grace to repent from that now and to trust in you, to agree with you, and to abide in you, and would you fill us up with your spirit by your grace so that we might live lives uh, faithfully and we would bear much fruit for your glory. God, I ask and I pray for all of that in Jesus' name, amen.